This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03, Thursday afternoon, August 10th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us on the Noon Business Hour. I'm Rob Hart. The loss of corporate headquarters is forcing suburban communities to find alternate uses for large business spaces. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, a key gauge of inflation is out today. Joining us on the Village of Bedford Park business line, reminding you to bring your business home, is Gus Fauché, Chief of Economist with PNC Financial Services in Pittsburgh. Gus, thank you for joining us today. 3.2%, that's the annual increase compared to last year in the latest reading of the Consumer Price Index. And that is pretty much right on the line. Uh, yeah, so inflation is still a little bit higher than the Fed would like. Uh, it was up a little bit year over year in July from June, but it's still, a, you know, still is slowing. Um, that being said, I think core inflation is running a bit hotter than that. The Federal Reserve is more concerned about core, which excludes food and energy, uh, because that's a better reflection of underlying inflation trends, and that still is substantially higher than the Fed would like. You know, close almost at five percent. Now, when it comes to the uh, core CPI, it would appear that that is driven entirely by shelter costs. So is this story becoming less of an interest rate story and more of a housing story? Um, certainly, uh, you know, th- that is a factor behind this. Uh, housing prices tend to be sticky. They tend to be persistent from month to month. Uh, that being said, we are starting to see house prices decline, and I would expect that we s- will see a slowing in shelter inflation in the near term. And that means that the Fed probably won't have to raise interest rates when they meet next in mid-September. What's the best way of telling the story going forward, either from an economist's perspective or from the Fed's perspective? Uh, because now we're getting into a situation where maybe base effects are distorting, distorting the uh, year-over-year uh, increase, because a year ago at this time, we're talking about double-digit increases in inflation or 8 or 9% uh, year-over-year changes. And do, do we now shift from year-over-year to month-over-month to get a better picture of uh, where inflation's going? Uh, you know, I, I'm looking at both of those. I think the overall story is that inflation has slowed substantially over the past year, but it is still too high from the Fed's perspective. Uh, a lot of that is being driven by what's going on in the housing market and that we expect to see a slowing there. Uh, that being said, I think that wage uh, inflation remains higher than the Fed would like. And, you know, we have a very tight labor market, and that is contributing to inflationary pressures in the U.S. economy. The month-over-month month, uh, difference is uh, two-tenths of a percent, and that's been pretty consistent uh, throughout 2023. And is that more consistent with uh, a 2% annualized rate of inflation? 
Yeah, 2%, maybe a little bit north of that, but certainly is moving in the right direction. Uh, when we look at what inflation has done in 2023, it is still above that 2% objective, but, but certainly much lower than it was in 2022. Obviously, uh, looking back a year ago before the uh, interest rates really took off, uh, if you said we'll get to uh, 3% inflation without a major recession or without mass layoffs, uh, would, what would an economist say to that prediction? No, I, I think that that's not terribly unexpected. The question is, can we get down to 2% inflation from where we are now without much pain in the economy? Um, you know, we had energy prices that surged in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We had very high food inflation. We have supply chain pressures that have eased. Uh, so all of that was kind of easy to work out of the system. Now the question is, well, we have housing costs. We have wage-driven inflation. That's a little more difficult. And so the question is, is what the Fed has done, is that enough to get, you know, from three and a half percent to two percent. And that's still an open question. Gus Fauché, chief economist, PNC Financial Services in Pittsburgh. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, finding new applications for unused suburban office space. A deposit for your future. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. As companies downsize or relocate their headquarters and large hubs in the Chicago suburbs, it's leaving a hole that needs to be filled. Let's find out some plans of action from Bob. Bob Reed, business writer and contributor for Chicago Magazine. Bob, thank you for joining us this afternoon. And there is a probably symbolic of this entire trend. Uh, you can see it if you drive on 294 uh, near Willow Road, uh, watching the slow demolition of the Allstate headquarters uh, that used to be a sign of economic might in the north suburbs. And uh, that is going away. And that's simply because of a number of prevailing post-pandemic trends. Rob, that's right. You know, the area suburban vacancy rate is 26%. That's the highest it's been in recent memory, and many people think it's actually much higher than that. You're right about this. Employees are now working remotely or coming into the office less often. This drastically reduces the need for conventional workplaces and those long rental agreements. And as a result of that, you're seeing a lot of brand-name companies like Allstate, like Baxter, starting to get out of these huge uh, campuses and going into smaller places. But that's leaving a glaring hole. And in some cases, there's controversy uh, within the villages and towns about how to fix it. Now, you would think that some of these suburban office campuses would actually become more attractive as companies try to lure people back into the office after they got used to working from home. And uh, you could sweeten the pot for them by saying, look, you can come back to the office, but you don't have to go downtown anymore. You can come to our campus somewhere in suburbia or by O'Hare. But it seems like even that message isn't uh, reaching its intended audience. I think that's correct, because either way, you still have to make a commute, and that's something that folks are resistant to do. And you know what? You probably don't need as much office space as you did way back when, and the companies realize this. So they want to downsize. They want to go someplace where they're going to be closer to the workforce. In some cases, you know, that's going to the West Loop. Other places, it just means going to something smaller within the villages. But as a result, there's uh, also concern about who's going to move in and take over these spots. For instance, in the Deerfield suburb, there's concern that the old Baxter site is going to be bought by an industrial uh, investor who's going to put up one of those big logistic uh, uh, facilities 
that means a lot of truck traffic going through a residential neighborhood, and the residents are pushing back. Now, there have been examples of suburbs uh, adapting to the loss of a uh, either corporate headquarters or a major corporate facility. And uh, you tell the story of Hoffman Estates, which redeveloped a former AT&T site. Yeah, that's right. They turned it into uh, Bellworks Chicagoland, and there's a similar Bellworks out in New Jersey. And the people from Hoffman Estates went out there and looked at it. And then they talked to the developers and said, you know, we have a big AT&T location as well that could be used for what you're trying to do out on the East Coast. So far, so good. You know, it still needs to fill up. It isn't a complete uh, rousing success, but it's an example of how these campuses can be repurposed and uh, improve the tax base and such. Now, are there enough uh, microbreweries and gastropubs to sustain Glenview, Lincolnshire, Riverwood, Schaumburg, Morton Grove, Naperville, and Oakbrook, all of which now have uh, vacant land that used to be a major corporate facility? You know, small business is the backbone of uh, the economy, but you're going to need some big players and some big uh, tax-paying entities in there. One of the things Besides industrial, are data centers, and uh, villages seem to like those because you put those down, they sort of just stay there. They don't bring in a lot of new uh, residents and therefore more drain on the tax base, and they create taxes. However, the problem you have there is once those uh, database uh, places go uh, out of business or are obsolete, you could be stuck with another big building. So it's really something in terms of planning they have to look at from a lot of different angles. Bob Reed, business writer and contributor, Chicago Magazine. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next, overcoming a fear of retirement. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. As some people reach the actual point of retirement, they may develop a case of cold feet. Let's talk about ways to mitigate the fear with Shane Gornick, partner and certified financial planner at Forefront Financial Planning in Downers Grove. Find him online, preparemyretirement.com. Shane, thank you for joining us today. And when you do prepare your retirement, Shane, there's uh, probably two components. There's the financial component, and then there's the psychological component. And in your experience, how many of your clients, they have all their ducks in a row financially, but when the time comes, they go to the water's edge, and then they choke, and they work for another year? It, it happens all the time, Rob, and, and sometimes it's more than a year. And, and what are some of the things that uh, they tell you when they say they just want to keep working? You know, they know they're financially ready, but just mentally they're not ready to take that leap. I think a big part of it is, one, purely from a financial standpoint, so much of the education you get, so much of what you're told during your working years is save, save, invest, invest, put away towards retirement. And then switching gears, especially when there's not as much information out there on how to actually withdraw the money and the the logistics of it and how it works, uh, because people aren't experienced with it or they haven't, there's just not the education out there for that uh, compared to the saving part of it, it can be really challenging. So a lot of times as a financial planner with our clients, what we do is really talk to them. Where is the money coming from? Is it going to be direct deposited to your bank account? Is it, there's withholding for taxes. Uh, we use it, We try to run it using conservative projections just to be extra sure so that they have that confidence other than just thinking that they can 
of knowing that there's a high probability that they'll be able to. Talking to Shane Gornick of Forefront Financial Planning in Downers Grove. Now, when you do get a client to, they, they make that leap, they do make the turn into retirement, and then what did they say about all those fears they had running through their head before they retired? Uh, many of the fears are, you know, they, they wish they'd retired sooner. Uh, you know, they, they, they built them up in their head because it's an unknown, which is, and it's rightfully so to be nervous about an unknown. The key is being prepared. And, and a big part of it is uh, the, the emotional part of it. You know, you, during your working years, you have structure. Uh, you wake up in the morning, eat breakfast, work, eat dinner, watch Dancing with the Stars, or, <laughs> and then go to bed. And uh, day by day, the TV shows may change, but the structure more or less is, is very same, very similar. And when you get to your work, your retired years, rather, that structure is gone. And so really trying to find a way of what are you going to fill that time with during uh, retirement, especially early on in retirement. Maybe it's working part-time. Maybe what, what charitable or volunteer work will you do? Or will you start a business? Will you spend more time with your grandkids? Things like that. Having an idea of what that time is going to be spent doing on the front end makes the transition, uh, especially emotionally, uh, much more successful. Shane Gornick, partner and certified financial planner with Forefront Financial Planning in Downers Grove. Find him online at preparemyretirement.com. Still ahead in Technology Thursday, how artificial intelligence is changing education. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This is Chicago's news traffic and weather station, News Radio 105.9. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. This is Mike Krauser. A pack of dogs attack another dog and several people in Highland, Indiana, before someone shows up with a gun. Crews in Hawaii deal with rapidly spreading wildfires that have claimed dozens of lives. Technology Thursday, the new era of artificial intelligence, is making its way into education. And Disney is raising the prices of two of its streaming services. WBBM business markets are higher. The Dow is up 90 points. The NASDAQ is up 24. The S&P 500 is up 3. We have 81 degrees right now at O'Hare under mostly sunny skies. 77 degrees at Midway. It's 1231. Topping our news at the half hour, police in Highland, Indiana, are investigating an incident on Tuesday night involving a pack of dogs that attacked another dog and several people. The story from WBBM's Mike Krauser. It happened near Johnston and Jewett Streets. Police say a woman was walking her husky when more than a half dozen dogs got out of a yard and went after her and her dog. Neighbors went to her aid. Someone who was there described the scene to the Post-Tribune. Blood everywhere, screaming, crying, and doing everything we could to punch, kick, just fight these dogs off. A man walked up and shot one of the dogs, killing it. That ended the attack. He was gone when police arrived. The woman who was initially attacked had bites to both legs.
legs. Others were injured as well. The Husky did not survive. Mike Krauser, 105.9 WBBM. The death toll from the Hawaii wildfires on Maui has climbed to 36. Entire towns have been decimated. CBS News correspondent Jonathan Vigliotti is there. Terrifying images out of a Maui neighborhood. Home after home swallowed by fast-moving flames Tuesday night as residents scramble to escape. Somebody's down right now. Somebody's down right now. Somebody's down. Alan Dakar went to check on his gallery and was stunned to find the business district up in flames. And then realized he needed to leave because that fire was raging out of control. Grabbed some people who didn't have a way out. A county spokesperson says all the people who died were in the historic town of Lahaina. It's 12.32 as the noon business hour continues. Markets are a little higher today. Joining us on the Village of Bedford Park business line, reminding you to bring your business home, is Paul Nolte, Senior Wealth Advisor and Market Strategist with Murphy & Sylvest in Chicago. Paul, thank you for joining us today. It seems like the uh, enthusiasm that uh, traders had at the beginning of the session has muted somewhat, and the Markets have trimmed some of their gains. They have, and I think some of it has to do with uh, interest rates. They they had one bond auction here uh, of the 30-year bond. Didn't go all that well. Interest rates continue to rise here a little bit. There's some expectation, too, among investment uh, investors that the inflation numbers that we got today might be the best we see for a little while as we've seen energy prices pick up and and housing remains, uh, housing prices remain strong as well. So there's some concern, at least um, beyond the numbers that we got here this morning on inflation. Now, the the original uh, read on the uh, July CPI uh, print was that uh, the numbers were encouraging, that you had that uh, two-tenths of a percent month-over-month increase, and that maybe the year-over-year numbers aren't nearly as informative as they might have been as the base effects settle in, because we're still comparing to a year ago when you saw double-digit inflation. Um, but what what's really, you know, if, if you're a Fed policymaker, what's really jumping out at you uh, for good or for ill? Yeah, it, it, I think what this does is it keeps the Fed engaged, which means that you, we may see one more rate increase, uh, maybe two over the next six months, nine months or so. We're certainly not at the pace that we were a year ago where we saw the Fed raise, raise rates by 5% plus. So they're taking a little bit more measured uh, measured pace of raising rates. And a lot of that is due to the fact that inflation still while it is getting better, the core rates and some of the other ones that they like to look at, like the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index, the PCE, still well above that 2% target. So if they're looking at that 2% target, we're not there yet. Job's not done, as some of the Fed officials have talked about. So the Fed, I think, is still going to be in the market, and there still is a risk for higher interest rates going forward. If you're a consumer and you've been used to a low interest rate environment for uh, 15 or 16 years, the sticker shock when it comes to uh, financing a car or maybe a, getting a home equity line of credit or a mortgage uh, is, is still fairly uh, eye-popping. I mean, these are the highest interest rates uh, we've been paying in uh, well over 20 years. But uh, let's talk about the the idea of an interest rate that actually keeps up with inflation. I mean, the rate is now above uh, 5%. And is is that considered is that a neutral rate or is that actually higher than what's necessary to uh, to slow down the economy? 
That is the key question that the Fed is trying to answer. And I think when you take a look at it, the interest rate now at at five plus, as you mentioned, is having an impact on the manufacturing sector. Manufacturing generally does borrow a fair amount of money for inventory, for plant and equipment, et cetera. The service side of the economy, which is doing extremely well, really doesn't borrow as much money as as you would uh, have on the manufacturing side. So it's less of an impact there. And really, services are more driven by consumers. And as long as consumers feel that we have good jobs, we're getting pay raises, I'm going to continue to spend. So you have that dichotomy that's going on in the economy. And again, that's the impact that we see. And until consumers start to fear for their jobs or fear that they may not have a job, then you will see the economy, I think, slow down rather dramatically. And we may see a tick up then also in the unemployment rate. Until then, I think the economy continues to to bump along here at the two, two and a half percent rate. Paul Nolte, Senior Wealth Advisor and Market Strategist with Murphy & Sylvester in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next in Technology Thursday, AI is changing how students learn. Your daily transaction for useful information. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Technology Thursday, and this afternoon we're examining the growing impact of artificial intelligence on education. We welcome in Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group, Professor of Advanced Media in Residence at the Newhouse School of Public Communication at Syracuse University. Shelley, thank you for joining us today. And uh, what a good time to uh, talk about AI in education, especially as uh, parents are getting ready for their kids to go back to school, or maybe they are already back in school. Uh, how will AI change the world of education? I mean, already now you have parents that have uh, teachers. Uh, they have smart boards in their classrooms. The days of chalk and eraser are pretty much over. And uh, every student uh, has an iPad or a tablet uh, that's standard equipment now. It's not a luxury. How is AI going to change the game? I think at the end of the day, we're going to have a little bit of a struggle this year as teachers have to learn something new in order to teach their students. Um, we are going to see AI co-pilots everywhere in our world before the end of this year for sure. Microsoft will release AI co-pilots for their entire office suite. So that would be Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Outlook, Teams. So every single office worker is going to have an AI co-pilot. Google's going to do the same thing with Google Workspace, which is their version of Microsoft Office, Google Sheets, Google Docs, etc. And so these co-pilots are going to enhance the way everybody works but everyone's going to need to learn to use them. So as they become more and more incorporated, people will get more comfortable with it. Where we're going to have some trouble, teachers are going to have to teach this technology as well as uh, teach some guidelines because there's no student in the world who isn't going to use a co-pilot to help them write. We can say, well, okay, you don't want them using chat GPT. Well, you could say it, but once it's incorporated into the word processor, then it's part of the tools that they have to navigate the world with. And so it's important for teachers and administrations everywhere to understand that AI is not an enemy. It's not the end of creativity. It's not the end of anything. These are productivity tools that every student is going to need to learn and need to learn to use well. And that requires the teachers to learn to use it. So how is it going to change education? Your question, the first thing it's going to do is send all the teachers back to school. 
We're talking to Shelly Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group. Uh, above and beyond the teachers learning how to use new AI applications uh, in education, it seems like this is also opening the door to an entirely new world of uh of educational material for students that are personalized for them. The AI figures out who they're dealing with and then all of a sudden becomes a more personalized experience, say reading or math. So almost. GPT stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. So by definition, it's pre-trained and doesn't learn from you. Everybody's thinking that ChatGPT learns when you work with it. It doesn't. An individual chat window can become smarter at what you're chatting about. But once you change the window, you're starting from scratch. Where these tools are fantastic, Rob, and what I think is going to happen every child can be now tutored at their level because, the, you know, we are not tutored that way. It costs money to hire a tutor, and it's, it's very difficult to exactly match your level of math skills, exactly match your level of English skills with the tutor that you're working with. That becomes incredibly easy with a large language model because it writes better than, let's say, everybody up to 12th grade. Um, I won't go further than that. It, it depends on the large language model and what you're trying to write and, of course, what language you're trying to write it in. But if you're using the English language, it is entirely possible to say, I need to understand fill in the blank. Um, what, are the, what, what are the political tensions that led to the beginning of World War II? And, you know, I'm studying the Weimar Republic. Or I, You can really get into some deep stuff with the language models that will make teaching a joy and learning a joy, too. So, yeah, we're going to be able to customize education to students and curriculum specifically. Uh, it, it's a brand new world for all teachers and all students, to tell you the truth. Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group, Professor of Advanced Media in Residence at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University in New York. Thank you for joining us today. Join us at this time tomorrow for Entrepreneur Friday and still to come, Disney experiences a rare quarterly loss. Investing 60 minutes each weekday for planning for the future. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Disney is digesting mixed results from its latest quarterly report as it announces an increase in streaming prices. Welcome and Ken Leon, Research Director with CFRA Research in Delray Beach, Florida. Ken, thank you for joining us today. Uh, what is the headline on Disney's second quarter report? Uh, is, what, what's the, the, the big takeaway? I think the big takeaway, and thanks for being on, is that uh, management's more focused. They're reducing cost. They generated $1.6 billion of free cash flow. And they're moving along with a new strategy to where Disney will be in the future, uh, which is going to be a blend of parks, entertainment, film, with streaming. And, of course, earlier this week, the other big takeaway was the announcement that ESPN, which is a legacy business and one likely to be spun off, in our opinion, over time, uh, entered a $2 billion deal with Penn Entertainment to create ESPN Bet. So what we're seeing is Bob Iger, who came back as CFO, CEO, navigate this company to become more profitable again and also put it on better strategic footing. We're talking to Ken Leon, Research Director, CFRA Research in Delray Beach, Florida. Let's talk about Disney Plus and just kind of the, the growing pains that Disney Plus is experiencing right now. And how is it going to reorient itself uh, to meet this uh, higher profit, lower expense model that Bob Iger is trying to uh, put into place? That's a great question. And, you know, so Disney with Disney Plus has been doing this for four years, although 
They have a majority position with Hulu, uh, which is a, a partnership with Comcast. Uh, where are they going with streaming? Uh, the market has um, certainly more elasticity to take price increases. We don't know how much. Um, and I think Disney is just following Netflix and others that have realized that their content is worth more you know, than what they were pricing a year ago. Uh, however, it's a very competitive market. There's some very large players, not only Netflix, but YouTube and Amazon. And I think when you look ahead, uh, Disney with a bundled offering will be Disney Plus and Hulu that they'll probably buy the minority interest for 10 to $11 billion early next year from Comcast. And essentially, it's, it's still much more competitive than the years and decades of having a more insulated business with cable TV, where you maybe only had one or two competitors. Ken, Leon, your uh, recommendation for Disney stock? We have a buy recommendation on Disney, and, it, and our investment view is unleashing the uh, attractive asset values of this company. In part, it's some of the legacy businesses uh, that I think um, public investors will benefit with restructuring and spinoffs. And then the new trajectory, uh, which is uh, moving more into video streaming and blending that with the Disney magic of films and theater and parks. Ken Leon, Research Director, CFRA Research in Delray Beach, Florida. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. You'll find past programs and later today a podcast of this hour at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.